that I devote to the family, and I tell about each one of the children. I tell about uh, how Ruth uh, and I reared them. I was gone so much of the time in traveling, and the great responsibility fell on Ruth. And uh, I tell about that in some detail. And I think it's going to encourage a lot of parents uh, that uh, no matter how busy you are, and how many temptations young people have, there is a way to survive, and that is through Christ and prayer. And uh, how young people, I think, uh, look at how their parents live in the home and how they treat each other uh, more than they do preaching to them or telling them what they should do. Well, I think young people today are searching for something and they don't know what it is. Uh, they're searching for peace and uh, happiness and fulfillment. And they're not finding it in the average community or the pleasures that they go to or the technology that they use. And I think that... Um, when they hear us proclaim the straight, simple gospel of Christ uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit, there's a supernatural power working in their hearts. And it's that voice of the Holy Spirit that speaks. Uh, and, and, and that's what I depend on in evangelism. I know that other voice is speaking. And uh, I, I, I can't take credit for that. That's the power of the Holy Spirit when you're faithful to the gospel. I want to continue to do what I'm doing, holding these crusades, as long as I have the physical strength and as long as uh, my friends Cliff Barras and George Beverly Shea and the people that set it up will stick with me. <laughs> uh, my strength is not near as what it was two or three years ago, and we've had to cut back uh, from holding a month or two weeks crusades now to three and four days, and I don't have the strength to stand before these big crowds and preach like I did a few years ago. Uh, I have a few things that uh, are wrong with me physically, which comes to as you get older, and uh, I don't expect to live forever, and I'm ready to go to heaven. In fact, I'm looking forward to it any day, but uh, till then, I want to be faithful in doing the thing God called me to do, and it may be that I'll, I'll go back to the street corner and preach. Harper Audio presents Just As I Am by Billy Graham, read by Cliff Barrows. To be honest, I never thought I would write this book. For one thing, I felt I was simply too busy for such an extended project. Not only my preaching, but my responsibilities as Chief Executive Officer of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association have always demanded a tremendous amount of time and decision-making. I've always been focused on the future, rather than trying to remember what happened half a lifetime ago. Most of all, if anything has been accomplished through my life, it's been solely God's doing, not mine. 
and he, not I, must get the credit. But a number of friends still urged me to undertake this task. Not only was it important for the historical record, they contended, but they felt there were lessons to be learned from the ministry God had entrusted to us. I recalled how much I had learned from reading the writings and studying the lives of the great men and women of the past. At my age, I thought of the next generation who might be encouraged by hearing my story to believe that God can do in their generation what He did in ours. I came to see that in its own way this recording could be a ministry also. I soon realized it was impossible to include in this recording everything we've been involved in during more than half a century of ministry, and one of the hardest parts has been deciding what to leave out. As I look back over the hundreds of crusades we have been privileged to hold, they tend to come together in my memory as one. Everyone had its unique character, of course, but time and space don't allow me to cover more than a few crusades and a few other events that were especially memorable. I have tried to be as accurate as possible in summarizing events and conversations, researching them thoroughly and recounting them carefully. However, I have come to realize how memories fade over the years. The best I can do is record events as I recall them. Finally, I want to add a few words about my calling as an evangelist. The word evangelist comes from a Greek word meaning one who announces good news. An evangelist, then, is like a newscaster on television, or a journalist writing for a newspaper or magazine, except the evangelist's mission is to tell the good news of the gospel. Gospel actually means good news. In the Bible, an evangelist is a person sent by God to announce the gospel, the good news. He or she has a spiritual gift that has never been withdrawn from the church. Methods differ, but the central truth remains. An evangelist is a person who has been called and especially equipped by God to declare the good news to those who have not yet accepted it, with the goal of challenging them to turn to Christ in repentance and faith, and to follow Him in obedience to His will. The evangelist isn't called to do everything in the church or in the world that God wants done. On the contrary, the calling of the evangelist is very specific. Nor is the evangelist free to change the message any more than a newscaster is free to change the news. The main thrust of our message is centered in Christ and what He has done for us by His death and resurrection, and the need for us to respond by committing our lives to Him. It's the message that Christ came to forgive us and give us new life and hope as we turn to Him. Through this recording, the listener will discover how I have sought, however imperfectly, to follow Christ. But if through listening someone learns what it means to follow Christ, or gains a new vision of God's plan for this world, then the effort has been worth it. It was July 14, 1950, and I was about to make a fool of myself. My friends had arranged an appointment for me with President Truman. It hadn't been easy to arrange, however. Apart from the fact that Truman was a fellow Baptist and a fellow Democrat, which meant practically the same thing in the South where I grew up, I did not know much about him. Did he know much about us? 
It was doubtful, although I had written him a couple of times since he came to office. Several years earlier, I wrote to tell him about Youth for Christ, the organization that had employed me as an evangelist since 1945. I wanted him to help us start a ministry in the American-occupied zone in Germany. His approval would be necessary, or so some friends in Congress had told me. I pictured the President giving careful and prolonged personal attention to my request. But, of course, that was not the case. He probably never saw my letter. The invitation to the White House was for me alone, but I corralled my colleagues Grady Wilson, Cliff Barrows, and Jerry Bevan into flying with me to Washington from the Winona Lake, Indiana Bible Conference at which I had been preaching. When we had arrived, I telephoned our contact to ask if I might bring along my three companions. After a noticeable pause, which I thought was a prelude to the answer no, the voice on the telephone agreed. What should we wear? We did not have a great deal to choose from. In the end, we went with what we had been wearing at the Bible conference. I was just a tanned, lanky 31-year-old, crowned by a heavy thatch of wavy blonde hair, wearing what Time magazine would later describe as a pistachio green suit I remembered as cream-colored, with rust socks and tie hand-painted. The other three were similarly attired, but was there something missing, we asked ourselves. We had seen a picture of the president on vacation in Florida, wearing white buck shoes. That was it. Grady already had a pair. I sent him to the nearest Florsheim store to buy white bucks for Cliff and me. So how could we go wrong? After all, the president was a haberdasher himself. Better early than late, we left the hotel. The White House was too close to take a cab, so we walked down Connecticut Avenue and across Lafayette Square, turning a few heads, I guess. When we arrived at the side gate of the White House, we passed through the security guards and checkpoints easily enough. The President's secretary then took us in hand, informing us that our visit would last exactly 20 minutes. Promptly at noon, we were ushered into the Oval Office. From the look on President Truman's face, the chief executive of our nation must have thought he was receiving a traveling vaudeville team. He welcomed us cordially enough, though, with handshakes all around. Then he said he had heard some good things about our meetings. I told him about Los Angeles the previous fall, where though we had preached in a huge tent, we had initially attracted virtually no mention in the press. Then newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst, for no apparent reason, had directed his editors to focus on what was going on inside the tent. Almost overnight, we had become nationally known. During the 50 days of meetings, attendance had snowballed to a total of 350,000, an unheard-of crowd for an evangelistic gathering in those days. Then I told him about Boston, where we had had meetings at the end of 1949, followed by an extensive New England tour in the early months of 1950. By this time, the newspapers were spotlighting us everywhere we went. Mr. Truman nodded. Then I reaffirmed my support for his swift reaction to Kim Il-sung's invasion of South Korea, even though the recent news from the battlefields had not been all that encouraging. Our allotted time was quickly running out, and I had yet to address what I really wanted to talk to him about, faith. I did not know how to begin. Mr. President, I blurted out, 
tell me about your religious background and leanings. Well, he replied in his Missouri accent, I try to live by the Sermon on the Mount and the Golden Rule. It takes more than that, Mr. President. It's faith in Christ and his death on the cross that you need. The president stood up. Apparently our 20 minutes were up. We stood up, too. Mr. President, could we have prayer? I asked tentatively. It cannot do any harm, he said, or something similar. I put my arm around the shoulders of the President of the United States of America and prayed. Amen, Cliff exclaimed during the prayer. Do it, Lord. When we left the Oval Office, I looked at the clock. My prayer had taken another five minutes. Outside the White House, reporters and photographers from the press corps pounced on us. What did the President say? I told them everything I could remember. Did you pray with the President? Yes, we prayed with the President. An enterprising photographer asked us to kneel on the lawn. The press corps roared its approval. They'd gotten their stories and their photographs. I declined to repeat the words we had prayed in the Oval Office, but I said we had been planning to thank God for our visit anyway, and now was as good a time as any. I led the prayer of thanksgiving as sincerely as I could, impervious to the popping flashbulbs and scribbling pencils. It began to dawn on me a few days later how we had abused the privilege of seeing the President. National coverage of our visit was definitely not to our advantage. The President was offended, Drew Pearson observed in his syndicated column, and now I was persona non grata at the White House. And Pearson was right. Mr. Truman never asked me to come back. I did visit Mr. Truman many years later at his home in Independence, Missouri. I recalled the incident and apologized profusely for our ignorance and naivete. Do not worry about it, he replied graciously. I realized you had not been properly briefed. After our gaffe, I vowed to myself it would never happen again if I ever was given access to a person of rank or influence. Forty-two years later, April 2, 1992, I was, in the minds of some, about to make a fool of myself again, this time in another capital, Pyongyang. North Korea was a place few people from the West had ever visited. Politically and diplomatically, it was considered one of the most isolated nations on Earth. The Korean War had ended some four decades earlier, but only with an armistice, not a peace treaty. Now it was rumored that North Korea was developing its own nuclear arms.